0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is S.A. Ibrahim, former CEO of Radiant Group in Philadelphia, and we're going to talk to him today about his leadership journey. S.A., welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Mukul, it's my pleasure being here. And I'm, big, I'm a big fan of knowledge at Wharton and what you've accomplished. Oh,
0: thank you. Well, luckily it was not I alone. My, my, I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful team of colleagues working with me. But thank you for your kind words. Uh, <clears throat> before we talk about leadership, I wonder if you could start by first talking about your early years growing up in Hyderabad in India. And, and uh, who were some of your role models at that stage of your life and what did you learn from them?
1: So I had a very interesting childhood in the sense I came from a community which is part of the communities that originated in Western India, in my case, from Kutch and then spread all over India and the world and uh, were in business. Uh, in fact, the joke about us was your true religion is really business it was a trading community. Uh, so uh, but interestingly, my mother While she came from the same community, she came from Bombay and had a very academic orientation. So I was stretched between business role models and highly intellectual other role models. And that included, as a young kid, people like Albert Einstein used to wander around with uh, George Gamow's 123 Infinity in my hand. I'm not sure whether I understood any of those comments, but it was a very impressive thing to walk around with. But on the business side, clearly some of the, Business leaders in India, like from the Birla family with whom my family did business, uh, the Tata families, and the, you know, uh, later, uh, you, you know, the many, I think most people didn't realize at that time when I first came to U- U.S. about the strong entrepreneurial Culture in India that was so powerful, it just wasn't at the upper levels. And today, people find out even the slums in India and Bombay, they're humming with entrepreneurial activity.
0: That's great. So, what, <clears throat> based on the fact that you already had such a strong entrepreneurial uh, background, uh, what brought you to America and when did you come here?
1: I came here in the bicentennial year, and uh, interestingly, Uh, I had been here on vacation once to visit some relatives while I was in college, engineering college. But I came here to go to school at Wharton, so that was my first stop when I came here. And what brought me uh, was the draw of America more than anything else. I was from a small business family in India. In those days, uh, business families in India were much maligned by the media and I wanted to come to a country that uh, uh, where free enterprise had an opportunity. Now, uh, I was the first directly. My uncles and son had been educated, but my mom and dad had never gone to college. So I was first in line in, in that direct lineage to go to college. And I went. I went to undergraduate engineering school, in India and business school here. And I betrayed my family tradition of being an entrepreneur and worked for large companies most of my life.
0: So what were your early professional experiences like? And most importantly, uh, what qualities did you develop that helped you ultimately become a CEO?
1: I was very fortunate in the sense that uh, I can't remember who the dean at that time was, Dean Parker, asking him of the choice I had when I graduated, who I should go work for. And unlike many other students who had focused on finance and consulting, out of school. I was attracted, given my Indian background, and having heard of those companies uh, and uh, that were in the manufacturing sector. And the two companies had narrowed down to IBM and GE. In those days, Reg Jones was the chair of the Wharton Board of Overseers, and the dean of the Wharton School said, of course, you're going to go work for <laughs> Reg Jones's company. So I went to work for GE. And it was an amazing company because I think one of GE's consistent products has been... Uh, management leaders because they have a DNA where they embed that into you right from the beginning everybody aspires to be a g in g a general manager who can deal with all aspects of business and not just focus and excel in one narrow aspect of business
0: what was the uh, impetus for you joining uh, radian i think you, and, and you became the ceo in 2005 what what, what how did that come about
1: uh, radian's board decided to make a change in their ceos and at that time, I was running the division of uh, having worked for large companies. I would uh, moved to a small company, and it's a, very, a story in itself, uh, because I was traveling all over the world. And and my wife and son wanted me to be in one place, so I joined my previous boss at Chemical Banks' small thrift in New York called Greenpoint. And he asked me to focus on growing the mortgage business. Then I would acquired a mortgage business in California and moved there. To run it, and we took it from six billion to sixty billion in six years, which is an amazing journey in itself. But in that process, I had become one of uh, the most uh, important customers of Radian, which interestingly was the last, was the last, still is the last surviving legacy of Saul Steinberg. It was spun off from one of Reliance's uh, subsidiaries forty years ago, and the board wanted to bring in a non-traditional. Person from a related industry, and and they were insightful enough to say that bringing somebody from a customer perspective was important. So I came having been a customer into running Radiant Group, which at that time was a 140-50 billion dollar credit risk company, uh, headquartered in Philadelphia, but with major operations in New York and London. Right,
0: and and during the course of your tenure. To what extent did that grow?
1: Well, uh, I joined the company in the middle of 2005, so I had about uh, the luxury of a little over a year before the downturn hit. Uh, The company's, uh, it was a mid-sized company, the company's market cap when I joined was probably in the mid $4 billion range, and for some unexplainable reason right after I joined, which one of the one of the equity leading equity analysts of our industry dubbed the SA Effect. The stock <laughs> went up to $5.5 and, and it became equal to that of our closest peer. And then we decided to combine the two companies just before the downturn. Uh, and then we announced that merger, and the stock hit an all-time high of $60. In February of 2007, and a week later, HSBC announced issued an earnings warning related to the subprime business, and from then onwards, it was one piece of bad news externally after the other until it started translating to affecting our businesses, taking it right down, unwinding the merger, and by the end of the year, being in a position by the end of 2007, uh, being in a position where we'd been written off in early 2008, our stock was briefly touched 60-some cents before hovering around and sticking to the $1.5 to $2 level, and our market cap had shrunk to around a, just a little over $100 million. Oh,
0: wow. So I, I know that in, in previous conversations, you have described your experience uh, as, as a journey to the gates of hell and back. Uh, I, I wonder if you could explain this to the knowledge at Wharton audience uh, in terms of what was the situation in the industry that 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 led this to happen, and how did how did you come up with uh, the strategy to deal with it
1: so the very nature of business of Radian was to be, was uh, the, the Radian had two major businesses the philadelphia based flagship business which had spun out of reliance took a layer of mortgage credit risk for certain borrowers who put down less than 20% and stood ahead of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So in the event of a default or foreclosure, Radian would take the hit before Fannie and Freddie and then Fannie and Freddie. And Radian had about 30-odd billion dollars of exposure to that, another 10 billion in European residential mortgage risk in Germany and Denmark. And then we had a New York-based business with about 115 to $120 billion dollars of risk exposure, half of it in guaranteeing principal and interest to investors in municipal bonds, and half of it in working with hedge funds and Wall Street uh, firms in creating synthetic or exotic uh, structured financial instruments that were used as investment vehicles or hedging vehicles around the world. And our exposure was very broad, ranging from railroads in Australia to toll roads in Turkey to exotic forms of structured debt for traders to uh, Puerto Rico, the infamous Puerto Rico, to mm-hmm. you know some of the counties in California that had went through trouble during the downturn. And that what happened was nobody—we all thought that at some point there would be an economic correction, but nobody got the depth or the prolonged duration of the downturn correct, much less the fact that one of the things we prided ourselves was we had so many different exposures that were— not at all correlated to each other. So we were stronger. One of the fundamental principles of managing credit risk is diversification Mm -hmm. and avoiding concentration risk. And for a period of time, all these risks became totally correlated and everything went bad at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we were in a more challenging position than any of our peers, because not only did we have a challenge in the mortgage insurance business where we competed with other mortgage insurance peers. But we also had a challenge in terms of financial guarantee where we competed financial guarantee peers. So we were dealing with two mega challenges at that time in a business where there were a lot of people in either of those businesses that didn't survive. Indeed, in the financial guarantee world, there's only two, us and Assured, that survived.
0: What did you do to survive?
1: (laughs) Uh, You know... As I look back at it, I can put it in the following categories. When I got into Radian, I had to deal with an immediate challenge. Uh, The business, Radian's business was double A rated, which is remarkable today. That's the rating of the United States because essentially our business was all about lending our rating to what we guaranteed. So uh, one of the rating agencies had put us on a negative outlook for our financial guarantee business because they had some... So within a month of getting there, I decided to change the leadership in that business, and I did, and then brought in a new chief risk officer for the whole company who had previously been the chief risk officer for all of J.P. Morgan. And as a result of that, we avoided getting into what was then called the CDOs of RMBS business Mm -hmm. that many of the peers did. And that decision filtered up to me, and I went with the recommendation of chief risk officer for going risk because we already had that exposure. So some of the things that we'd done just before the downturn helped, and then I turned my attention to the mortgage insurance business, where we were very concentrated in a handful of customers, and it emerged with us, and uh, and the opportunity came about because our stock market cap had gone up, that the best way of diversifying uh, mix from being concentrated on 10 customers and a lot of Wall Street-type customers for structured mortgage products was to merge with our closest peer who had a much broader array of customers. And that's what we did. Now that merger unwound. So I took advantage of the fact that our stock was so low and we're going to be, we were in a position challenge that gives you, perversely speaking, if you look at every challenge as also providing an opportunity in disguise, the challenge we had was uh our stock was so low, we're going to be losing so much money. So I went to in the mortgage insurance business, having come from that industry, I said credit has overnight became completely tight and very different from what was yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I told my salespeople, go out and spend money and hire a lot of salespeople and expand. Mm-hmm. And even my CFO wondered and said, Why are we spending 20, 30 million dollars more? On expansion when we're going to be losing money. I said, precisely because of that, when we're going to be losing $300, $400 million a year, who's going to notice the $20, 30000000 And by writing a good new book of business, we will offset the bad book. Right. And some of those things I was fortunate played out and they largely played out because we had an amazing people, group of people. At that time, we couldn't access capital. So we decided to stop writing business in our New York financial guarantee business because that business was broken once we got down, downgraded along with everybody else in the industry. And we cannibalized that business as a source of capital. And we used the fact that our credit spreads had widened to 6,000 basis points and nobody thought we would survive as a means of getting the exposure in that business commuted. And we were so successful at commuting that exposure that every time we got rid of risk, the amount of capital we you know, we got from not having that risk was greater than the cost of getting rid of the risk. So we Mm -hmm. kept growing capital. So while everybody, many companies, financial guarantee business went to zero, I was able to get $500 million of dividends from it to write the business. And then two years ago, I sold it for $810 million with all the risk. And in the meantime, we wrote almost, by being the early players, $200 billion of new mortgage insurance business and I just created this hokey chart on the back of an envelope saying to convince everybody, I had to convince everybody in my company that we could make it because no company with 6,000 basis points of credit risk, uh, uh, you know, of risk spread ever came back and everybody else had written a obituary. Yeah. So the fact that previously I told my people to hire people and grow gave them a message that was completely contrary to what people externally saying. saying. They said, How can a company be going under when we're expanding? Yeah. And, You know, the fact that we're writing all this book, I projected, and I said, look, all this business, the way the mortgage insurance business works is you write business today. You actually, in the first year, don't make, you make only a little bit of money because you spend more money getting the business. But in the next five, six years, that business continues to produce money. So you create a stepladder function. I actually drew this stepladder chart and said, look at how much money we're going to make in a few years. We're going to be profitable and people kind of looked at me like I was crazy even internally. But then it became right. And we ended up, we ended up when I left the company uh, after 2016, having the best year ever in the history company in 2016, very profitable, getting a, in our in core business, getting our investment great ratings back, going from virtually no, uh, running out of capital to people thinking we'd never have capital to having excess capital and starting to wonder and one of the turning points was having an investor call where instead of being asked, how are you going to get more capital is being asked, what are you going to do with all the excess <laughs> capital you created? <laughs> but it was—it all came down to have, focusing on our customers and our people and having the guts to do things that were different or before anybody else did.
0: Would you say that this journey from the gates of hell to what sounded like the gates of heaven uh, was the biggest leadership challenge in your career Uh Or or, or, uh, would you say that that that's the case?
1: Uh, Absolutely, because prior to that, I had grown a company. And it's a different challenge itself. We went from 500 employees to 5,000 employees. We went from 60 million pre-tax income to 650 million pre-tax income. We went from having no technology to speak off to winning a global award, the Wharton Infosys Award, as being the leading technology pioneer in North and South America and the Americas. Uh, So it was a different challenge. And being the first, one of the first to open a back office operation center for mortgage business in Bangalore, India. So I was not prepared for a turnaround challenge in the crisis that happened, but some of the lessons worked out. So, for example, hitting the gas pedal right after things broke turned out to be a leadership challenge, but I had some experience of that. So it was taking together bits and pieces. The reason I had experience of that is when I first started building Greenpoint Mortgage, I was bold enough to propose that in five years, I would double from 12 billion to 24 billion. And mm. my parent company board and so on said, oh yeah, that's too ambitious, you've got to scale it down. I'm sure you can relate to that with the knowledge mm-hmm. and experience. So in the year 2000, there was a downturn in the mortgage industry and instead of cutting expenses, which I did for like to like, I doubled the number of my branches. I said, right. this is the downturn is the time to expand. So in 2001, our goal was by 2005 to be $24 billion. In 2001, when the wave came back and the industry came back, we beat our goal by doing $26.5 billion in the very first year after our plan. So I applied the same mes- method by writing new business. And throughout my career, I, I loved my work and education. I benefited a lot from it. But I never became a technical person. I wasn't ever the—I I mean, early on— When I went to work for GE, I worked for a wise old senior person at GE, and he told me, you have a choice. You can either continue to build your models and be a very bright analytical person, or you can start to learn about people, and I focused on the people side. So the one thing I've always aspired and liked as a leadership challenge is I've always wanted to develop the ability to turn people on, and I've always said everybody's capable of doing a lot more than even think they are and how can I find a way to remove the barriers that get in the way? And that's what happened at Greenpoint in making them grow and that's what happened at Radian in making it overcome the downturn. But I just did a little bit. It was the people there who did all the heavy lifting and I was blessed in both cases to have wonderful people.
0: What are the biggest lessons that this experience has taught you?
1: The lesson... The simple things that we forget. Uh, So don't try and waste your time on complaining about how unfair the world is. Hey, I went from Greenpoint to Radian. I exchanged all my options and stock at Greenpoint for Radian stock. It all got wiped out. I could have sat and moaned about how unfair things were. We had no capital. We had, you know, ability to raise capital. We could have said, let's give up. So we focused on things we could change. And I came up with this hokey thing called, called uh, C to D, from the current state to the desired state. And we'd get together and say, let's imagine, and then we'd make it realistic, but stretch. You know, what was it going to take to get our stock from $2 to $4? Well, we have to demonstrate that we're on our way to profitability. We've got to reduce our risk exposure. And we'd Create a list of twenty of those things, and then everybody in the company would contribute to small and big ideas to make it happen. And behold, we got to four dollars, and we said, "How do we get from four to eight dollars?" <laughs> and then ultimately, through that journey, we got from. By the time I left, we almost hit twenty. So we went, and and we all we I exited the company at a four and a half billion dollar market cap, which it was when I came back. So. Uh, The lesson really learned is don't moan about the world being unfair. Don't focus on things you can't change. Concentrate on the handful of things that you can do and believe in yourself. Don't believe in the external people who say you can't make it because if you believe you're creating a path to success, it's going to happen. And then you've got to do two things. You've got to keep your customers with you and you've got to keep your employees motivated and with you. And I used to tell my people, nobody's... uh, giving us money today. But I said, if we keep our customers and our employees, in a few years, they'll be lining up at our door, knocking on our door to do it. And sure enough, that happened. People then, I had, uh, one of our investors, was publicly known as John Paulson, he came to me and said, I want to invest in your company because I'm now ready to, I've made a lot of money betting the housing industry is going down. I'm now ready to bet the other way and I want to start by investing in your company. <laughs>
0: It's on, that's great. Now, it was, I think, on May 17th of 2016, last year, that Radian announced that you would be stepping down as CEO. Uh, often, this is a difficult decision for uh, CEOs, especially those who have been through such a harrowing experience as you have, uh, just a decision to let go. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that process worked out in your case? And what can other CEOs learn from your experience?
1: I think it has to be a very individualized uh, decision. People have different priorities and things they want to achieve in life. And I loved what I was doing at Greenpoint. I loved what I was doing at Radian. But I didn't want to do it forever. There are other things in life I do want to do. Uh, and besides, uh, my wife and I, of you know, even though we're from South Asia, in the U.S., this part of the country we really love is the West Coast. And it was taking a toll on my family to com- commute back and forth every week from the West Coast because my wife, after a while, so have to spent some time in Philadelphia, wanted to spend more time in San Francisco. So I was waiting for the right time to leave. I toyed briefly with the idea of leaving at the end of 14 when my uh, contract expired and was persuaded by the board to extend it. And more than anything else, I said, even though my projections show the company— Climbing back to the top of the hill and then being able to scale new heights, not everybody's buying into it. I want to wait until it becomes completely crystal clear that we've done it. Right. And sure enough, with as we were starting to approach 17, I said, this is going to be true. 16 mm-hmm. is likely to be a very solid year for us. And I've got to leave when I brought the company to the top and when I honestly... We're in a risky business, so anything could happen tomorrow. But as far as I can see, honestly, I don't see any clouds in the horizon. So I said, this is the perfect time to leave. And I want... I'm still enthusiastic. I still want to do other things in life. And I still have the energy and health to be able to do some of those things.
0: So in March, Richard Thornberry uh, succeeded you as the CEO of Radian. Uh, how did you go... And You and the Radian board, how did you go about... Uh, deciding who the successor should be? What qualities did you look for?
1: Uh, So the way the process worked is I had my main focus on running the company, and while I was involved in the search process, there was a core team of four board members that took that on as almost a very heavy responsibility and looked at and worked with the search firm, Spencer Stewart, and went through a very thorough process of looking at a lot of candidates. But they developed a criteria of what they needed in the future CEO, based on uh, interviewing about 20, 30 people in the le- uh, Radian Leadership Scale and a lot of outsiders. And, they ca- uh, and with the help of the search firm, they boiled down those criteria and then they checked the candidates against that. And as you know, one of the most important responsibilities for any board is to hire a future CEO. And they had a lot of good choices and they selected. Whoever they thought was best positioned to lead the company over the next at least 10 years and take it to higher levels, and fully understanding that the business of tomorrow, if we if the company did its things right, was going to be very different and evolve to be completely very different from the business of yesterday. So I, I kept telling them, having lived through that, you know, at GE, watch that succession between. Uh, uh, you know, when Jack Welch was pro- picked, and Jack was very different from his predecessor. And I said, "Don't use me as the model. Create a model of what's going to take for the company to successfully achieve its future aspirations."
0: Great. Well, you, you just mentioned a little while ago that one of the factors in your decision was that you wanted to leave at a time when you still had the excitement and energy to do other things. What are some of those other things that you're working on
1: now? What fuels me throughout my career is passion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, at some point, age catches up with passion. I still have a lot of passion for a lot of things. And I wanted to, more so than working for large companies, I may still be open to, well, while I've turned down a lot of external large port positions, I would be, if I felt connected with a company that's really passionate and making a difference. Uh, but for the most part, I'm getting involved with new startup companies. And I want to be involved in companies where they generally engage in activities and products that make a positive difference in the life of people the companies that actually do good for the society, and then they balance it off with doing good for their shareholders and ultimately create an environment which is a terrific environment for employees and anybody who works for the company, whether they stay there for a short time or a long time, feel they've benefited from it. One of my most rewarding moments is when I was leaving Greenpoint and when I was leaving uh, Radiant. People came up to me and said, you know, the fact that you were around and touched us Made me a better person. Made me more successful than I ever thought I'd imagine. And so it should be with businesses. So I want to take that passion to the companies. And one of the first companies I'm now involved with is called Meritize, out of uh, Frisco, Texas, which is going to help revitalize the middle class in this country in a small way by going after highly by by an, uh, enabling students to get loans to go to highly skilled programs like learning how to operate heart uh, monitors and heart defibrillators and be in the uh, operating theater with the, heart, the surgeon monitoring the heart and those kind of specialized skills so that these people's lives will become much better as a result, they'll be able to borrow it a lot less than borrowing on credit cards and because the risks, you know, not that the credit card business bad, but, but they charge appropriate to their risks and returns, and we can charge appropriate to our risks and returns given a different model of doing business. So that's just one example. I also want to be involved in social ventures. And then I will watch, spend a lot more time with my wife and have some fun with her and watch how my son is developing as an entrepreneur as he launches his business, which, by the way, is a product that was born at Wharton and Penn called Hydros Bottle, and he's reintroducing it in a much newer version, and his initial uh, response from the people he's shown the product to has been just stunningly impressive. That's
0: great. Now, since you mentioned your son, uh, based on your own experience, what kind of uh, advice would you offer young leaders who are at the beginning of their leadership journey, and would you give the same advice to young men as you would to young women?
1: Uh, i 'm very passionate about women 's education, by the way. One of the things that my family endowed at Wharton was a scholarship where I believe six or eight women it only is for women uh, have gone to have gotten the MBA through their own hard work and merit, but enabled by paying their tuition. Uh, so I would definitely I, I think women have as much the right and the opportunity and the skill set to be successful men. And the advice I'd give them watching the difference between my son and I is uh, decide whether you can, there are many paths to success. Decide whether you want to be the best violent player equivalent in the business and master that equipment, or you want to be the maestro. Mm -hmm. And both are very different areas. And in the past when I went to Wharton, it was more the violent players that, came out of the school, but my son is pursuing a path very different from mine, where as a young kid, you know, in in his 20s, he learned to deal with contracts in assembling teams, dealing with different class of investors, even litigation, marketing strategies, sales contracts. I said, I only knew a lot about a narrow area. This kid knows everything. (laughs) <laughs> and a lot about everything and he's not unique there's a lot of young people like that which is why I keep a foot in the door in the San Francisco and now the Seattle Bellevue area there's a lot of young people particularly there now it's even here who are so impressive that age I just shudder to I, I feel blessed I don't have to compete with them <laughs> down the road at the, at the that at, at the age I am now so they'll be in a class by themselves and my advice to them is Create your own path, but choose wisely and then be good at what you do. And number one, no matter what you do, master the ability to deal with people because ultimately, either as customers, as investors, as employees, your ability to deal with people is going to be the biggest way you can succeed as a CEO. CEOs don't accomplish anything by themselves. They only accomplish things if they can get, the others to produce success for them. I used to make the comment, you know, you can either be a leader or a loner. And you can be a loner by being the brightest person and you try and sell those ideas to your team and you leave them behind and you increase the distance between them and you and you take pride and say, oh boy, I'm so intelligent, they don't even follow me. But that's not what a CEO. A CEO is you've got to be ahead of them, but you've got to keep them coming. And at some point, my most defining, pleasing defining moments, both at uh, Greenpoint and at Radian were when those people following me became so good that at times I thought they were ahead of me. And I said, boy, I'm now a CEO managing from behind because they've already surpassed (laughs) me. And I said, instead of being scared of I said, isn't that so Mm -hmm. thrilling? That's wonderful. That's a wonderful place to arrive. And the other thrilling thing was Uh, At Greenpoint, because we were so successful at Radiant when we went under and, uh, you know, almost went under because people thought—and we came back. There were two years in a row of people's options and so on in the past came back, and I walked out Radiant, and they said, I'm so glad I stayed and put my faith in you because I didn't think I would ever make this kind of money in my life. And they deserved it and more.
0: (laughs) So since you mentioned there are many different pathways to success, let me ask one final question. How do you define success?
1: I define success as, in my way, making a difference, making a positive difference. Mm-hmm. So like I said, you know, the most thrilling thing is not measured in terms of the money you make or in terms of how many people—we all know something or have something that others can benefit from. Not everybody the same. And if we learn from those things where they're better than us but pass along the things that we— are better than them and we, in that process, can improve the lives of others, would be fantastic. And the same thing comes to whether it's knowledge or money. I believe that that's not ours. We've been given temporary custodianship of our fortune and we have to use that wisely to benefit as many people as possible and creating better people and better world. That's what my parents did for me and I'm grateful to them. That's what not only my parents, When I was growing up in India, everybody around me did. That's what the, you know, faculty members and all the business leaders who came to speak at Wharton did for me. That's what my mentors did for me. I feel so fortunate that they are the ones who made me and it's my job to make them, not in a business world, but also in the world of, you know, helping people who are not less fortunate or helping people in parts of the world, this conflict and making them understand each other and appreciate it. We all want regardless of our faiths, our color of our skin, our gender, our national origin, our orientation. We are all one human beings. And all this conflict about things in different, you know, if we focus instead of the things that divide us in finding out how we can take the best from each other and create a person of tomorrow and a community of tomorrow who builds on the best of each other, <laughs> we'll have a better world.
0: I say thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me here. And, uh, boy, in the next few years, Knowledge at Wharton will be even bigger. Thank you. so. Amazing success. I'm the one who should be congratulating you here.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.